how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 408, where I sat down with author and memoirist Nick Brown to discuss his drummer memoir, Bang Bang Crash. The description reads, A rock and roll drummer abandons his successful music career to pursue his true passion and discovers a deeper understanding of artistic fulfillment in this episodic memoir of Swapping One Dream for Another. In this interview, Nick talks about creativity as a process, focusing on what inspires you creatively, the pros and cons of writing a memoir, physically removing yourself to recharge, and how he's somewhat come back to the drums. There's also a link in the description to read an excerpt from the book called The Yips. If it's your first time here, make sure you hit that subscribe button. I'm also giving away my first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, right now for free. That's the book and audiobook. Head over to brockswinson.com to get your copy today. And here's my conversation with Nick. Uh, when I was young... I really was into both, really. You know, I, I was into reading and writing since I was a kid. But um, when I was in fourth grade, I started taking drum lessons in Greensboro, North Carolina from a really transformative teacher named Pete. And it was real serious, you know, and I took it really seriously. And so that's when drums became a big part of my life. And, um, you know that I ended up forming a band in high school, actually in eighth grade, and we had a lot of success. And that, in a way, actually gave me more time to get into reading and writing because, you know, the life of a traveling musician is mostly sitting around and trying to stay sane. And a lot of that was sort of pre-internet. And so I just read a ton. And I was into writing stories, too. So they really... The genesis of both, I feel, overlapped and and helped one another, or, or at least my interest in music really did help my interest in in writing and reading. You mentioned kind of taking it very seriously. There's there's a, a book called Big Magic where uh, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about writing as the playful trickster or the tortured martyr. Um, did you find a transition to more playfulness or how do you kind of view creativity today between those two very different worlds of it? Yeah, I like that description. Um, the important thing for me is to have it be a process and a routine and not looking for the spark of inspiration. Cause if I wait for inspiration in regard to making art, you know, it come like twice a year. <laughs> I'll just right. sit around a lot. So the important thing for me is creating that routine. And I find that with that, that's when I put myself in a position to sort of interact with either one of those sort of poles that Gilbert, you know, mentions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I mean is if I sit down to write and it's not very good, maybe 30, 45 minutes in, I'll have one little spark that's super exciting. And that'll be, you know, the the sort of trickster or is something perhaps more, you know, complicated. But um, yeah, for me, I just try to 
make a routine so that I'm not waiting for a reason to create art. How different were those two worlds? It seems like uh, you made some jokes in your book and one of the early chapters of the, the drummers are kind of picked on of the band. I guess you would say like the, if the drummer has an idea for a song, the band's over, you know, aside from Dave Grohl, maybe. Um, what are the two differences for you? Because it, writing is more singular by yourself or you know, drumming is more of a collaboration. How do you kind of view those two worlds of creativity? Yeah, my my view on the two different artistic practices changes all the time. At first, when I transitioned from drumming to writing, I said, oh, there's there's no overlap. They're totally different. Now I'm on the like other end of that. I think they're basically the same thing in my mind. But to get back to your question more specifically, uh, when I was a musician, you know, I played the drums, which is most of the time you're a sideman or a support you know, instrumentalist uh, working for me, I was working a lot with songwriters and I was not the songwriter. And, you know, as a musician, I think I was really blessed with not wanting to be a songwriter. You know, I have a terrible ear. I don't uh, for melody and harmony. I don't sing well and I don't write songs. All I wanted to do was play the drums. And that's what I did. And that was a real blessing for me as a musician. But, um, you know, the the flip side of that is in that role as a session musician, you're often a support person for another person's artistic vision. Mm -hmm. And when I transitioned to writing, it was wildly intoxicating because I realized, oh, I can do just what I'm completely into. So as opposed to trying to make the best like lens crafters jingle or some weird thing I've come into on a session, I can focus really on what I'm inspired with artistically and i get to skip the tricky dynamics and diplomacy that comes with trying to make a band work but at the same time now you know in the relatively infrequent occasions that i work with other musicians i'm reminded also of just how exciting it is to collaborate with other artists so there's pluses on either side but the intoxicating thing for me with writing is just being able to dive fully into what I'm interested in and not have to convince a group full of other people to get on board with me. Uh, so the big question I think is in part of your book too, like, do you still play the drums? And do you see that as like, when I interviewed Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he plays drums for himself. It's just a, a, a physical act to kind of get things out. Bill Burr, the comedian does the same thing. Do you do anything like that now? Have you shifted the way you think about the drums? So there was a long time in my life when I really didn't play drums at all. And it gotten to the point where friends, neighbors, colleagues, you know, people in my life didn't know that I played an instrument at all, let alone that I ever had, you know, a successful career doing so. And part of that, it was just a little weird. <laughs> and, you know, as a writer, I guess I sort of understand that if something's weird, it's a good thing to write about. And that's part of why I started writing this book. But then... The interesting thing about writing the book is like I started getting more into playing the drums. I took all my drums apart. I cleaned them all up. They're in great shape. You know, I started interacting with more musicians. I got hired to play on this great record. I, I actually just booked a few dates on a tour in California for the end of May. So 
part of the premise of the book is like, I never play drums anymore. And now through the process of putting the book out, I've actually been playing a lot. And um, the that thing that you mentioned with um, Gordon Levitt is similar to their sort of daily role in my life. Um, it's a physical act that erases my brain a little bit, gets me off of, you know, being on the computer, being on the phone. And so it's actually become a great way for me to, yeah, physically remove myself in a similar way to, you know, I like to, I go for a run in the woods every day and it's a similar, yeah, physical and sort of magical activity. Just my wife calls them laundry beats because the drums are set up in the basement by the laundry machine. She knows if I'm taking the clothes out, if she hears me play for a little bit. So the drums have come back into my life and I'm playing more. And um, it's been it's been nice to have that as an option sort of in my daily routine. So we may jump around some. I want to talk about some of your early work as well, but kind of what led you mentioned the maybe the origin. But was this was this a book that was difficult to pitch? Uh, how did you kind of describe it when you're talking to publishers and agents and that sort of thing? Right. I started, you know, I had um, in all those years where I really didn't talk about music, I did have one good story that like some people knew. And that's the one story that like if people found out, they'd ask me to tell it. It's about this man called Falcon, which is a silly name. And it was a great band, though. And we had just this one sort of amazing story behind the band. And so after a while, I decided, man, I need to write that story down. That's an interesting essay. So I started that writing that essay. And that was 13 years ago. And the essay kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until I realized, oh, you know, this isn't an essay. This is this is a whole book. So I cut that essay down to make it stand on its own mm -hmm. and shared it with my agent. And he was pretty excited about it. This is my first nonfiction book. And, you know, with novels, you sort of finish the whole book first and make it perfect, and then you send it off to publishers. And with a nonfiction project, it's totally different. So it was the first time that I wrote a book proposal, and it was really interesting. I mean, a book proposal is long. You know, it was like 70 pages, and um, maybe a little bit less. I had some bits and pieces that I was working on, but it was a proposal that went out. And so it was a new position for me to be in to have sold a book and have a deadline and the book didn't exist right <laughs> but you know after i've after i'd worked through a lot of the difficulties with that one central chapter and saw it expanding there was one or two other chapters that took me a while to write and once it was like i found my voice for the book and after that it came pretty quickly was it harder for you? So just shifting from like fiction to nonfiction with nonfiction, I guess you can always do more research, but when you're also adding like a personal essay aspect to it, like you can overlook big things. You almost have to talk to someone else and then they tell you what's important. Like, how did you kind of shift over to that mindset? Yeah, well, that's a, you're totally right. You know, I mean, I like, I, as a writer, I would always be better basically if my wife was always with me telling me like, that's boring. That's interesting. Cut that, do that. But, you know, with this, what I tried to do was to have each chapter have, uh, I wanted each chapter to be able to stand on its own outside of the book. 
So it would so almost be like an essay. And mm-hmm. so I, I tried to put a central question with, you know, in the middle of each chapter that was like that compass point. And that helped me sort of figure out what I was writing about. But, you know, I mean, the funny thing with with writing fiction, the burden is on invention. And that's hard just to come up with stuff all the time. And then with nonfiction, it was really the opposite of like having almost limitless resources of content as at least as much as my memory would make available and then figuring out, you know, what I wanted to keep. So a lot of it was writing essays that were too long and then cutting them down. But it's funny, you know, of course, I, uh, you know, I'm sure it's the same with you. You know, we think back to things we did 20, 30 years ago and just like a, yeah, I don't remember most of it, but I did sort of trust like whatever it was that I did remember vividly. It wasn't always, it didn't always make sense, but I sort of trusted my own internal editor. Like there's a reason I remember this scene. And lots of times I would just get those details down and then realize what that was telling me, you know? Um, and I did share the book with, um, you know, I mean, anytime somebody appeared in a chapter and part of it, I ended up sharing that with them before publication to make sure they knew it was going to be in the world and to do fact checking. So there was some of that. Did you have any like pushback? So like for those who are not familiar, you did mention the band Falcon, but you really don't even say what bands you were involved with, at least early on in the book. It's not like it's like the true story behind the Chili Peppers or something like that that sells for that reason. So what else had to kind of be different about this book? What did you think that was like, well, it's definitely not that. I want it to be this. And then what was that? Right. So a lot of times with musicians, rock musicians, um, you know, people expect your life story to be hammer of the gods, you know, like trashing the hotel rooms and like excess. And my experience was so much the opposite, not just personally, but with almost all the musicians that I was touring with and working with. And at the time, you know, those were all the bands that had, you know, the top songs in the charts and everybody was like pretty nice, hardworking and like, you know, like pretty boring, really. And so there's that aspect that I wanted to acknowledge, but then more specifically, like as a musician, I was successful. That first band I was in, Anthony, and we had a hit song, but it wasn't a big hit. You know, it was like, it was 14 on the charts, which is like in uh, basically totally forgettable in the grand scheme of things. And so for me, it's this interesting world where like I had a real job i i did it for real i had success but it wasn't it wasn't so much success that it defined me and it allowed me to sort of walk away from it and be able to look back on it with a different perspective sometimes i say i'm like a minor league ball player who gets called up you know for a season or two on a team that doesn't make the playoffs like we probably don't know the backup shortstop for the A's last year you know what I mean like but that guy's probably a good baseball player so for me what made this story unique was like it was the story of a working musician you know that uh left that art form but kept living and you know as with a lot of people who have something important in their past you know the rest of my 
days are sort of filtered through that screen of being a musician. And so it was it was like the yeah, the sort of working man's angle and not the the rock legend. <laughs> I like to I interviewed a lot of screenwriters and I like to always ask them the value of writing spec scripts, like whether or not the movie gets made. I feel like there's so much like to that. Um when you're I'm sure you're occasionally asked to give advice either to young writers or young musicians. What do you kind of say about that, about like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be J.D. Solinger in your first book is, you know, catching the rye or something along those lines. Like you can just write to write. How do you tell that to young people? I tell a story to my students frequently about um, my first books, really. I mean, I, I, I remember I had a friend who published a book before I published. And it was a real book published by a major publisher. And I read the book and it was fine. And I thought, oh my God, I don't have to write the best book in the world. All I have to do is write a book. And there's a weird thing about that. For me, once I lowered the bar, it allowed me to write the best book I could at the time. And that's really all that any of us can do. And so... There's a lot of easy ways as artists for us to freeze ourselves. And if we try to be uh, the most groundbreaking artist in the world, lots of times that's a bar we can't rise to. But if we just try to make the best art that we can, that gives us the chance to do what's in our capability. So, um, you know, I, I do tell my students that. And also, you know, I think it's important especially as writers, to find ways to connect with other writers, if only to demystify the process, you know, um, especially for students, undergraduates, you know, a lot of them, they think of a writer and they just think of Charles Dickens or like somebody who's dead and impossible to imagine, like typing and hitting print and looking at something and thinking, oh, this is no good. And so I think any way you can demystify that process through work and sort of lowering the bar is good. I'd say most readers can only name like 10 authors that are alive today, you know, or something like that. There's not that many, but the bookstore is obviously full, you know, lots of stuff's getting made. Um, tell me about some of your fiction yeah. work. Like you kind of, you approached it. So for those listening, like when you write, when you get paid to write a screenplay, which a lot of our audience, they kind of tell you what to write. You can also go write a spec and then you write the whole thing and show up that way. So it sounds like you're having to write the full fiction piece. Are you working with an agent during that? Or is it just you, so you're, you're taking a kind of a bigger chance, maybe in your time, at least. Tell me a little bit about that and when that idea is ready for you to pursue writing the full novel. Yeah, it is a big chance. And there's a big chance you write a novel that nothing happens with, you know, um, you can spend years writing a book and then have it not sell. And that's pretty common and uh, can sound a little disheartening. But yeah, as a novelist, you're working on what you're inspired to work on. Your agent doesn't have a lot of say in the content usually. I think that would be unusual. Uh, my agent will know if I'm working on a new book, but it's basically like, let me know when it's done. <laughs> Right. And then and then that's when the conversation starts, you know. So let's say I finish a new novel. I send it to my agent. Uh, I'll have a few friends read it first and then it'll go to my agent. And then that's just, you know, they're going to work on getting it perfect until it goes out to a publisher. No agent is really going to want to send out a novel that they don't think is going to sell. 
And so that's really the start of the conversation. But it is, uh, you don't share bits and pieces of a novel with an agent usually and have them help craft it towards a sale um, with a with a novel, not, not in the sort of literary world. So to come back to sort of part of what you were getting at, it is a big artistic risk and you just have to hope and trust that you're doing something worthwhile. How much so um, someone also from from the area that you and I are both from, Lisa Cantrell, she used to write horror novels decades ago. And, and back then, like the publisher pretty much did everything. You kind of handed over what's kind of expected today. What kind of publicity are you required to do and some of those things? Well, it depends on the publisher, you know, largely. But um, it's funny because even since, you know, my last novel came out in 2015, and just the landscape of what you're expected to do since 2015 has changed dramatically, you know? Yeah. So uh, I didn't have much of a social media presence a few years ago. And as soon as this contract for this book started coming together, you know, the publishers basically like, Nick, you got to get on Instagram. You know, I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Okay. I'll get on Instagram. Um, but you know, I think with any major publisher, you're going to have a great publicity team, that's, you know, they're the ones sending the advances, they're sending out contacts, you know, they're setting up interviews. But at the same time, like, um, it it's really helpful for you to share what you know with the publicist and provide a list of names, you know, for me of writers that I know that have been interested in the past, writers that um, I follow that I think might be interested in the piece, that sort of thing. And like looking at this project, I would say most of the coverage came from connections that we discussed and were sort of targeted. Mm -hmm. um, and so the more you can like have an informed uh, involvement on the rollout, the more that helps. And another thing I'll say, like, I feel like I just figured this out this time around. Like when you when you publish a book, they send you a box of advanced copies, you know, and like in the past, I think like, oh, man, these are awesome. You know, I give a couple to my like friends and family. But then I think like, oh, these are like collectors. They're not even the real book. They got the advanced stamp. And like, what am I doing? Like those are still in my basement, you know? So like with this book, I was like, I am sending these out the second I get them. And I sent I sent them out immediately. I don't have any of them. And it was so important. That's maybe only 20 or 30 like books that I sent out. But like. Each one of those were to somebody specifically that I wanted to have it. I wrote a note and just the conversations I had with some of those people were so encouraging. A lot of those early sort of directed outreach, you know, points of contact from my end have been surprisingly helpful with the rollout. When you're saying something like that, I would imagine so you're including a note. I think you just said, are you, are you kind of, complimenting them on something and saying why it would connect with them? Like what's kind of the essence of what you're trying to say in addition to just sharing your work with them? It depends on, on the artist, you know, some, if it's like a, a podcast host or a, you know, a, a critic or something, I'm not going to just reach out to them without having had a personal connection. I'll let the publicist do that. So right. it depends uh, sometimes it's a friend of a friend, you, you know, and I'll say like, hey, Tommy, I know we're both friends with, you know, Jim. I listen to your podcast or something. I think it's incredible. Just thought you might 
might be interested, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but but then like the other side is just sharing it directly with good friends that, you know, I mean, you know how it is with writers, content producers. We all have too much stuff from our friends, you know, in life. I, I've already given a pass. Like, I expect no one I know to actually read my book. I, you got too many books on your table. But I did make a point to send my book to my friends, you know, who were I have a lot of great writers who are friends and just to say, hey, when you get a chance, you know, whereas in the past, really, like, I would sort of feel like that's not cool. Like, oh, I'm not going to push it on anybody, you know, and now I'm like, I'm just getting it out there. And it's been it's been nice, actually. So do they, you mentioned having or feeling like you could get on Instagram kind of to help promote the book. So writing is so different because I mean, you can show pictures, you can show book signings, whatever. But like with music, someone can listen to a song in a minute and they can see a painting in a second. They can see a movie in a few minutes or whatever, you know, like writing is like I need your attention for this. You know, um, how do you kind of think about that? How does that translate to Instagram? Yeah. So it's been really interesting for me to see the difference in the answer to this question between a novel and a piece of nonfiction, in particular, a memoir. So with a novel, when you publish a novel, you know, in a way, like people don't really care about your novel until they read it. You know what I mean? It's like, OK, maybe the book is good. I'll let you know in three months after I buy a copy and take a look at it. But what's interesting about a memoir is nobody has to read it to know if they already have a connection to that material. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if, you know, like me, I was involved in a, you know, musical act. There are people who are interested in that act or people I knew from my past in music. There are other musicians who've never heard of me, but are interested in that aspect of it. And then just people from my past, you know, or from the region that we live in, mm -hmm. there's like this built-in immediate um, interest, which uh, I was blindsided by, honestly. When the book started to roll out, I, I, I was overwhelmed with the amount of people getting in touch saying, essentially, I can't wait to read your book, or I remember this, or I remember that, or thanks for writing this. And it was that sort of pre-existing contact that I was able to sort of touch with publishing this book. Now, yeah, I hear from people after the fact, but more specifically in regard to Instagram, like for me, it's been interesting to post content about my book tour that helps generate interest Two about um, like uh, Oxford American published an excerpt from the book. That was a shorter piece people could read and take a look at. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I'm able to post a few things that sort of touch on my past that shows up in the book. So like a clip from me playing on the tonight show or on MTV or something. And that's interesting for people to see and they can laugh at when I had hair, you know? Um, but it is, I don't know, you know, I'm learning as far as how to manage that stuff on Instagram, but, uh, it's largely been fun for me. It's definitely like multiple buckets. I can see you sending it to some people for the music aspect, some local people, because you're kind of a local celebrity kind of in that in that regard. Um, we're almost out of time. I'm working with a few people that are want to want to be memoirists. What advice might you have for like writing a first memoir, just getting it the first draft done? Any advice like that for people? Right. Um, the more specific 
the better. Because when we think of a memoir, you know, we have our whole life, it's overwhelming, you know? And so for me, in crafting this memoir, it wasn't even what is the story I'm trying to tell. It was at first just a handful of very specific scenes and questions that I was trying to write and that I knew would be important. And then the second part of that was me finding a way to make those questions alive in the surface level of my life and not just in the past. Mm -hmm. So like when I was writing this book, it's writing a lot about events that had happened in the past, but I pushed for one of the bands I was writing about to play a reunion show because I wanted to hang out with those guys again. But also I know as a writer, that's got to be the final chapter, right? Like I got to push this story to the surface level. And there were a few other ways that I, I involved myself dramatically in the question in my life today. And, and that helped those stories come to life. So stay specific. Don't be afraid to involve your current self in whatever questions you're writing about in regard to your past. That's great. I saw uh, David Sedaris speak not too long ago, and he kind of he always puts himself he, like he seems to live a more interesting life because he writes personal essays. He puts himself in odd positions and asks weird questions and gets into those conversations, you know. T totally. I mean, it, whether it's memoir, screenwriting or fiction, you have to create a dramatic event on the page. You know, I mean, that's what humans respond to the most in regard to storytelling and with memoir, we're the protagonist, you know, and so it can be uncomfortable, but the more you can put yourself in a dramatic event that engages with the question at hand, I think that's just a useful way to make that story come to life. And yes, Sedaris is so great at it. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.